May the words of my lips and the thoughts and meditations of our hearts be known at all times acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> I want to thank Daniel for the opportunity to share God's Word with you this morning, and we will be focusing on Colossians, a letter to the Colossians, and uh, would be helpful if you opened your bulletin and followed along. And the key verse, I believe, for the whole book of Colossians is uh, verses 6 and 7. We have it there. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And in the first chapter of Colossians, uh, Paul tells the young church in this city that he is very pleased to hear of their faith, and he prays for them that they will be blessed and encouraged in their walk with Christ. And then in this chapter, he gets into some of the principles of growing as a Christian and as a Christian community towards maturity in Christ. And then in the next couple of chapters, three and four, he gets much more specific about how it is that a Christian is to live in relationship with your spouse, with your children, with the wider community, because Christianity has got to be practical if it's got to be anything. Now, as you might have picked up from my accent, my wife Donna and I are from Ireland, uh, from the town of Derry, and when I was in high school, my brother and I uh, started a chess club. And at that time, uh, we were certainly the two best chess players in the whole school. Uh, not many people had actually picked up on the habit of playing chess. I haven't played much in the last 50 years, so I'm not really any good at all at it today. But at that time, we were fairly good. And our job was to teach the younger kids how to play chess. So we had rows of kids lined up facing each other with chess boards. And uh, we were walking up and down trying to teach them to play. And after a while, we got to play tricks on them. And the trick was that you would distract the two, and then you would pinch the king off the board. And you would see how long they would keep playing without noticing that the king was missing. And it's amazing. They could play for a whole period, 40 minutes, just stealing pieces off each other uh, without actually noticing that the king was gone. And I think that's a good illustration of what can happen to Christianity if we're not being careful. And that is what Paul is warning us about in this passage, that if we take our eyes off the centrality of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, then we will lose the essence of our faith and we'll be open to all kinds of heresies and all kinds of distractions that will take us away from the cause that he has before us. Now look at this verse for a moment in a little more detail. Paul gives us four characteristics of our walk. First of all, actually, the first thing I should say it's, is that therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. He's appealing to Christians to come back to their conversion experience, to the time when they first heard the good news 
about Jesus Christ and received the Holy Spirit and entered into the fellowship of the Christian community and how exciting that was and what a transformation that was and how they loved to receive Christ. It talks later about Christ being the, uh, the fullness that dwells within us. And he says, you have to be able to continue in that experience because it's sometimes easy for us as Christians to say, well, that wow experience was in the past, but now I'm open to all kinds of other influences and experience. So as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, stop and pause there for a moment. A lot of us think of receiving Jesus as Savior, the one who saves me from my sins, and we'll come on to that later. But it's the Lordship of Jesus Christ that is important, that He is the boss, that He is the organizer of my life, that it's to Him I owe obedience and that I get my directions and my marching orders, and that I'm living my life in order to please Him. He is the Lord of all, and He is the Lord of me as an individual. So, so walk in Him. And walking in Christ is a metaphor for living the Christian life. It was brought out in the first songs that we sang. So, the four things it says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The idea of rootedness is, of course, from nature, and we're surrounded by nature. I was reading this week that a tree really thinks of itself as a creature that lives under the ground. It happens to have a solar panel uh, for processing, but what's really important to it is the roots from which it sucks up all the nutrients and water, and, and its life uh, is really underground. And we have got to sink our roots into Christ Jesus, beginning with our conversion experience and, of course, growing daily in Christ. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, then uh, just track along with me and we'll hear about how we can find Christ for ourselves. Having been rooted, we are now built up. It's a different metaphor of, of a building of some kind, but uh, a building is always established on a firm foundation. And you can build strong and high and great if you have a firm foundation. And a building that is solidly built is a beautiful and useful building, just like this structure that we have around us. And then established is like thinking of a business that's well established. It, it's uh, produced its product. It's set up its marketing. It has good relationships with its customers. It's well known. It's easy to be able to engage with this company and to get what you want. And um, it's established. It has a place in the marketplace or a university that is established or a professional person who's got their qualifications and experience and, and has got their shingle hanging up and they're established in the work that they do. God wants us to be established as Christians. He doesn't want us to remain as baby Christians always seeking, always kind of learning, always making excuses for ourselves from stepping away from active ministry in the world. No, God wants us to be mature. And if we've been Christians for a number of years, then we jolly well ought to be mature and working for Christ, established. And then the flower is abounding, abounding in thanksgiving. Christians ought to be the most grateful, optimistic, and thanksgiving people on the planet. 
Not that we're uh, any less upset by all the violence and all the problems and pressures that are there in the world that come upon us personally and that we see in the news every day. It saddens us. There should be tears. But in everything, we find a way to see that God is at work and that we give praise and thanksgiving to God. I think thanksgiving is something we need to learn to practice. Uh, we have a friend down in Orlando, uh, a man who's recovered from alcoholism and drug addiction and uh, misinformed sexual identity, and he is, uh, practices the art of thanksgiving. Every morning he gets up and writes a list of things that he's thankful for. He's a teacher in a school. And you know, when you get up and you're getting ready to get to school very early, uh, you're always rushing and you're always under pressure. But no, he stops and he makes his list. And then during the day, he comes back and checks up on the list uh, to remind himself of the things that he's thankful for. And it helps him when he faces problems in his work and temptations in his life. Now, Eugene Peterson, in the message, uh, somewhere along this passage that we're reading, talks about uh, we don't, that we don't need a telescope, a microscope, or a horoscope to discover who Christ Jesus really is. And I think that that helps us to see how this passage can break into three sections. Uh, you know, good Bible teachers always have three points. And this is how we are meant to relate to the world, to the flesh, and to the devil. And if you know your prayer book and your baptism service, you'll see that those are the things that we're called upon to, uh, to resist or to renounce uh, before we go through the sacrament of baptism. So first of all, a telescope, which is the world. Here I'm reading verses 8 through 9. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and all authority. The idea of being taken captive by the philosophy and empty deceits of this world it's interesting Paul will have something to say about slavery toward the end of the letter, and also in the parallel letter to Philemon, he talks a lot about slavery. But here he says it's not only slaves who are in slavery, it's us. We are taken captive by the foolish philosophies and the empty deceits of this world. The world that the, the one source of evil in the world is actually the structures of the world. You take any structure, be it a business, be it an educational facility, be it a religious denomination, a political entity, an economic force in the world, a social media kind of force, any structure, it doesn't matter, and it tends towards uh, degradation. It tends towards manipulation. It can easily be taken over and used. It tends towards the worst elements of human nature, and it tends to create an environment which can seduce and, and uh, destroy the life of the people within it. 
And it's not necessarily something invented by the devil. It's just something about the complications of living together in human life. Uh, it's to do with economics and politics and power structures. A destructive culture can even invade church life. And it's very sad, I think, as we've watched America over these last five years, uh, how we have declined into finding our identity in our politics and in our social attitudes and not finding our identity in Christ. Uh, we have chosen to fellowship with people who tick the right boxes in our belief about politics and the things that the world give us and economics, and not to find our identity in people who also, like us, love and serve Jesus Christ. We ought to be able to sit down and have Bible study and worship and prayer and fellowship with Christians who have different points of view about all the things that go on in the world, because our unity is found in Christ, not giving up what we happen to believe, engaging in honest debate and discussion about these things, but actually loving the person above all else. And Paul has made this plain that we're no longer Greek or, or uh, uh, Gentile. We're no longer male nor female. We're no longer slave nor free, but we have this amazing unity that is ours in Jesus Christ. You look at the church today, uh, just the church generally, all kinds of denominations and, and ways of worshiping and so on, and we're a very divided community. We're divided economically. You find churches that are fairly wealthy, well-heeled, and you find churches that are uh, full of people that are struggling and in poverty. Uh, you find people, churches that are based on color, uh, based on uh, politics, and not really based on Christ. We have to do something to reach across this barrier. Although I think it's very hard for denominations to reinvent themselves, yet I think what we can do is create partnerships with other individuals and with other organizations to work together and to say at least, well, if we're not worshiping together on a Sunday morning, at least we have projects that we can work together uh, along during the week. Back in Ireland, in uh, Dublin, there are some old churches, some couple of hundred years old, and there are actually two Anglican churches that are side by side, <laughs> modest churches about this size perhaps, exact, identical build, side by side. One is not too well built, the other is well built. And how they came about 200 years ago is that the gentry would be driven in their horse and carriages to the nice church, they would be let out and they would get into their church to worship, and the servants, the coachman and the footman and so on, and the maids perhaps if they were there, they would go along to the other church next door and they would have their worship service. But their worship service would end five or ten minutes earlier so that they could go and get the carriages and line up to come and collect the gentry. Isn't that so ridiculous? I mean, it just paints the picture of how divided we are socially. And of course, we could apply the same to issues of color. So the world, and then the flesh, uh, verses 11 and 12. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, 
in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Here Paul is saying that we fight as Christians against the temptation of the flesh. The flesh is our human nature. We are not born perfect. We are born as fallen creatures. And there is a bias towards lying and cheating and stealing and selfishness uh, that is there within us throughout our whole life. And it's always, it's a ticking bomb that is there within every person. And in every conversation and every thought and every decision that we make, the temptation is there to pull us subtly off course towards selfishness. Many times it feels right to indulge ourselves in these ways. And if we have no kind of Christian conscience, we're not even going to think about it. Uh, the town of Colossia, like every other city in the pagan world, was full of licentiousness, was full of a gaudy uh, expressions of enjoying uh, all the so-called pleasures of this world without any boundaries and without any regard to the effects they have on other people. And here Paul is saying that we cannot think that we solve the problem of the flesh by just simply going through the rite of Jewish circumcision and then trying to, with our own efforts, keep all of the Jewish laws, which is the background of at least some of the believers in Colossae and is the temptation that is being offered to the Gentile Christians that they should get on board with this old way of thinking. Instead, Paul says, that we should focus on the fact that we have a different kind of circumcision, that when we entered into faith in Christ, we had a circumcision of the heart, and that we went through the same experiences that Christ went through, that as he died, so we too died in him, as he was buried, so we too were buried with him, as he too rose victorious over Satan and sin and the world, so we too rise again victorious in him, in which you were also raised through him, through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So what happens then when we're tempted by the flesh? I think we're to remember this verse, but I think we're also to learn how to play dead to sin, to turn a deaf ear to the temptation that is before us. It's something that takes practice that we have to work at all the time. It's never going to let up in this world. We're always going to feel this pressure. But with practice, we can learn to play a deaf ear. It was very sad, wasn't it, to hear the testimony of the little girl from Uvalde in Texas who, when her classmates had been shot, she had at least the common sense to play dead so that the oppressor wouldn't find her and get her. And that's what we have to do to the evil one who is out to tempt us and to get us. I remember back in Ireland, it's just one of my favorite stories, but in the first parish where I worked, there was a man who worked as a prison guard. And because prison guards were all, all often uh, restricted in their social life because they could easily be assassinated uh, by the IRA, and all kinds of situations, but they had created a social club within the prison for the guards, and they could have a few pints of beer before going home. It was really a very bad idea <laughs> to have people, especially for Irish people, but 
uh, to have people who are under tremendous stress at work and then give them a, a social outlet like that. So he became an alcoholic. And uh, if you visited his home, it, it was kind of very threadbare. There were some basic bits of furniture and things managed, but most of his money was going uh, into his alcoholism. And he was barely holding it together at work and barely, barely holding it together at home. And uh, the uh, rector of the parish was able one time to speak with him and lead him to faith in Christ. There was a tremendous change in his life. He was able immediately to give up alcohol. In fact, he said the craving for it disappeared immediately. The flesh, the call of the flesh upon him was delivered. He was delivered from it immediately. Interestingly, he struggled with giving up tobacco for a very long time. That craving didn't disappear immediately, but through perseverance and prayer and faith, it eventually uh, disappeared. And he said, it, he had this testimony that at work he wouldn't go to the social club, and he talked to the inmates as well as to the other guards. And one wise guy said to him, do you believe that Jesus turned water into wine? And he said, yes, because I've seen him change wine into furniture. <laughs> and if you went to his home, he, he was providing for his family. They had a, a decent standard of living. And he was tithing to the church, and he was uh, finding a ministry within the church. He was a changed person. And the evidence was there for him to see. C.S. Lewis said, the flesh knows that if the spiritual life gets hold of it, all its self-centeredness and self-will are going to be killed, and it is ready to fight tooth and nail to avoid that. We have a battle against the flesh. But we also have another enemy, and that is the devil. We turn now to verses 13 to 15. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Again, in classical Christian thinking, there are three sources of evil, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the world is just the way that human society is organized, and it has a tendency towards corruption. The flesh is the bias that is there within our fallen nature that tends to uh, draw us away individually, at a, one person at a time. And the devil is real. I believe there are demons, and that there is a devil, and that he is active in the world. And I think it's interesting when you look at the various Christian traditions that we tend to focus on different aspects of this. Uh, the liberals uh, tend to focus on the world. They see evil as being all simply a matter of correcting institutions. And if we can correct all the institutions, then people growing up within healthy institutions uh, will be better and more model citizens. And there's something to that, certainly, we need to have better institutions. And evangelicals tend to uh, focus on the flesh, that it's all about personal holiness and salvation. And if we would just have better people in the world, then they inevitably would make the world a better place, and there's something in that. 
And then charismatics and raving Pentecostals <laughs> tend to see the devil behind everything. The devil's tempted me to do this. The devil did this. The devil got into me, got into her, whatever. They see the devil active in everything. And the devil is active, but I don't think the devil is uh, especially interested in everyone. The devil has got lots of tools to distract us and keep us away from growing in Christ. You should read the screw tape letters of C.S. Lewis for some insights into that. But I got some great insight myself from a book on um, the Christian healing ministry by Mark Pearson, who says the three ways that the devil, you know, the forces of evil influence us is through obsession, oppression, and possession. Obsession, oppression, and possession. Now, obsession is the most innocent. And this is where a person gets to, to be interested in other, other forces of power in the world. You might have thought years ago about Ouija boards. You might have thought about seances. You might have thought about uh, horoscopes. Um, you might have thought about uh, places in the world that are marked as uh, symbols of, of spiritual power and influence and so on, like perhaps Stonehenge. And people are very interested in these things, these kind of phenomena. We have all kinds of mystery channels on TV that talk about strange happenings. And folks get very interested in these things. And they can even become obsessed with these things. And it's not necessarily the devil doing very much, but I think he nudges us along this path of obsession. And when we become obsessed with these things, we're taking our eyes off Christ. We're, we're moving that king off the board, and we're beginning to fo focus on lesser things, on secondary things. I think any cult, Christian cult, is always something that majors on the minors instead of majoring on the majors. And then oppression is the next stage where the devil gets around us and puts pressure on us. He's not inside us yet, but he's in our circumstances around us, in, around our home and our workplace and our relationships, and he's constantly, as it were, putting pressure on us from the outside to make us feel sad, to make us feel listless, to make us feel angry and bored, and, and to kind of manipulate the circumstances around us so that we just feel less centered on Christ and more displaced and anxious about things that are going on in the world. And there's a lot of oppression, and it can happen on individuals, and it can happen on a wider scale of things. You think about the poor Ukrainians going through the war, and, and how just oppressive it must be to have shells following and, and uh, lack of communication and not knowing where food is going to be and who is surviving where and what's happening. This is a force of oppression that really eats away at someone's faith. And then the last stage is possession, where some element of evil comes and rests within us and takes up residence within us. Now, I believe that the Spirit of Christ is always there within a Christian, but I believe that it can be pushed into a corner, and I believe that we can have other influences and forces that can also take up residence within us. And there may need to be very serious counseling and prayer to help a person 
to get out of these situations. The main thing to remember about this is that the cross of Jesus Christ has triumphed over all kinds of evil by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Every one of us could stand guilty before God because of our trespasses and sins. And not only has the cross of Christ canceled those demands and, and those uh, sins, but it's also canceled the law itself. There is now no law against those who are in Christ Jesus. That's not an excuse for living any way we want to live. The Christian now lives their life as a thanksgiving to God, as a praise to God for the things that he has done for us. The devil has no power, really, no power over us as Christians. But the devil is very clever. He can bluff, he can deceit, he can deceive, and he can lie. And he can play on our human weaknesses to bring us down. One more thing uh, I want to think about before we go to the last part of the sermon, and that is a, a Christian song that I came across. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. But it's from the Transvaal in South Africa, and it's uh, what some African Christians sing. It's, the words go like this. Jesus Christ is the conqueror. By his resurrection, he overcame death itself. By his resurrection, he overcame all things. He overcame magic. He overcame amulets and charms. He overcame the darkness of demon possession. He overcame dread. When we are with him, we also are conquerors. We are conquerors in Christ Jesus. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. I'd like to finish by taking us all through the, that one part of the baptismal covenant, which is the renunciation. And when you renounce, you are denying the influence and the power of something over yourself. And this is what we would do at baptism, whether it's of a child or whether it's of an adult. We would go through these words as well as many others. And so the response that you are supposed to give is, I renounce them. I renounce them. Okay? So three questions. Do you renounce the devil and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? I renounce them. Do you renounce the empty promises and deceit, deadly deceits of this world that corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? I renounce them. Do you renounce the sinful desires of the flesh that draw you from the love of God? I renounce them. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us uh, to become those kind of mature Christians that our brother Paul lays out for us today in Colossians, that we would be uh, rooted, built up, established, and fruitful in thanksgiving and praise and servants of you in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.